He spoke more than words. He lived more than moments. He tore through traditions, leaving a trail of grace in dusty footprints. He marked time by actions and defied critics and blessed followers. Questions, many. Answers, one. Jesus. In Diary of a Savior, you will see the glory of his life and hear the truth of his words. Ready for a change of heart? Ready for amazing grace? Ready for your life? To begin again, it's all in his diary. Maybe nobody has, has called forth so many different perspectives and opinions about life and about himself than Jesus of Nazareth. Opinions abound. Get a few people around a table and get umpteen different opinions, umpteen different views. Jesus, a great teacher? Jesus, a moral philosopher? Jesus, God in the flesh, come down to accomplish something amazing so far beyond our ability to to comprehend, and yet he calls us to, to rest like children in his love. If, uh, if Guinness ever puts this in, in its famous record book, uh, championship channel surfer, I think I might win. I mean, I can go through 100 channels, lickety-split, in just a few seconds. And so I was doing my championship move the other day, and, and, and just like God sometimes just peeks in on these moments of my life, he, he peeked in, all of a sudden I, I hit something and I just stopped. And I thought, here it is again. Here it is, God just, just poking through, God just peeking through into our lives. And it's a few people sharing their opinions about Jesus around a table from a recent motion picture called Hail Caesar. Take a look. Gentlemen, thank you all for coming. I know you have parishes, flocks, and temples making enormous demands on your time, but I'm sure you appreciate also that great masses of humanity look to pictures for information and uplift and, yes, entertainment. The here at Capitol Pictures, as you know, An army of technicians and actors and top-notch artistic people are working hard to bring to the screen the story of the Christ. It's a swell story, a story told before, yes, but we'd like to flatter ourselves that it's never been told with this kind of distinction and panache. Perhaps, sir, you forget it's telling in the Holy Bible. Quite right, Patriarch. The Bible, of course, is terrific, but for millions of people, pictures will be their reference point for the story. The story's embodiment. The story's, uh... Realization. Realization. Now, Hail Caesar is a prestige picture, our biggest release of the year, and we're devoting huge resources to its production in order to make it first class in every respect. Gentlemen, given its enormous expense, we don't want to send it to market except in the certainty that it will not offend any reasonable American, regardless of faith or creed. Now, that's where you come in. You've read the script. I want to know if the theological elements of the story are up to snuff. Does the depiction of Christ Jesus cut the mustard? Well, the nature of Christ is not quite as simple as your photoplay would have it. How so, Father? It's not the case simply that Christ is God or God Christ. You could say that again. The Nazarene was not God. He was not, not God. He was a man. Part God. No, sir. Rabbi, all of us have a little bit of God in us, don't we? Well, it's the foundation of our belief that Christ is most properly referred to as the Son of God. 
It's the Son of God who takes the sins of the world upon himself so that the rest of God's children, we imperfect beings, through faith, may enter the kingdom of heaven. So God is split? Yes. And no. There is unity in division. And division in unity. I'm not sure I follow, Padre. God has children? What, and a dog? A collie, maybe? God doesn't have children. He's a bachelor and very angry. No, no, he used to be angry. Why, he got over it? You worship the God of another age. Who has no love. Not true. He likes Jews. God loves everyone. God is love. God is who is. This is special. Who isn't who is? But how should God be rendered in a motion picture? God isn't in the motion picture. Then who is Todd Hawkins? Gentlemen, maybe we're biting off more than we can chew. We don't need to agree on the nature of the deity here. If we could focus on the Christ, whatever his parentage. My question is, is our depiction fair? I have seen worse. Reverend? There's nothing to offend a reasonable man. Father? Well, the motion picture teleplay was uh, respectful and exhibited tastefulness in class. Who made you an expert all of a sudden? And what do you think, Rabbi? Yeah. I have an opinion. It's a swell story. The Bible's terrific. There's a little bit of God in everybody, right? It's not what we come here for. It's not how we understand who he was and who he is and who he will always be. Lots of opinions about Jesus and some no opinions. But what do you do? What do you do when, when so many people on the planet are going down another path? How do you engage that? How do you understand where they are and what they're all about? And what do you do in response to it? In 1 Peter, there are some words that I think apply to our relationships with people who have other faiths. Uh, I'm going to read 1 Peter 3. I'm reading it out of the message. And, uh, and the, the section right before this is talking about husbands and wives, but then Peter makes a shift. He starts talking to everyone. Summing up, be agreeable, be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, be humble. That goes for all of you. No exceptions, no retaliation, no sharp-tongued sarcasm. Instead, bless. That's your job, to bless. You'll be a blessing and also get a blessing. Whoever wants to embrace life and see the day fill up with good, here's what you do. Say nothing evil or hurtful. Snub evil and cultivate good. Run after peace for all your worth. Or you could put it this way, seek peace and pursue it. God looks on all this with approval, listening and responding well to what he's asked but he turns his back on those who do evil things. If with heart and soul you're doing good, do you think you can be stopped? Even if you suffer for it, you're still better off. Don't give the opposition a second thought. Through thick and thin, keep your hearts at attention in adoration before Christ your master. Be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks why you're living the way you are and always with utmost courtesy. Be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks why you're living 
the way you are and always with utmost courtesy. The NIV puts it clearly this way. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have or, the, for, or give the reason for the hope within you. But do this with gentleness and respect. But do this with gentleness and respect. In a world where there's a lot of different belief systems, in a world where people follow other paths, God is saying something very important to us. As we speak to them about Christ, as we offer them this hope that we have and and we explain it to them, we must do it with gentleness and respect. In order to do that with gentleness and respect, it becomes incumbent upon us to understand why they think the way they think or where they're going down that path that they're going. So this morning, as I explained to you the uniqueness of Jesus, I'd like to bring you an overview of some of, of the world's most uh, significant religions that, that billions of people follow on the planet. And, and in the, the description that I bring to you, I hope that with gentleness and respect, when you meet someone who's of a different faith, that you'll be able to listen to them and then explain to them why you have this great hope of Christ within you. Let's look at Buddhism. There are 4,200 religions in the world, 4,200, 4,200 religions in the world. Some of them are are derivations of others, so there's sort of a a shade off of another religious set of principles. But with 4,200, you know, we could never cover them all. Buddhism is one that we will cover this morning. Buddhism is a non-theistic religion. There is no belief in God. Atheists can be Buddhists. Buddhism is basically a set of beliefs that we're going to look at in just a moment. It involves an endless cycle of birth and death. I'm born, I live, I die. I'm born, I live, I die. I'm born, I live, I die. Until at some point you get released, you've you've done the the work of getting through the suffering. You've done the work of, of releasing yourself and you end up in what is called nirvana. And nirvana is pictured like this candle. This candle, burning brightly, is you through all the cycles of your life. You're born, you live, you die. You're born, you live, you die. You're born, you live, you die, you die. And in Buddhism, when you get to that level of nirvana, you know what happens? This is you. And this is what happens. You're done. It's over. You are snuffed out because nirvana actually means to become extinguished, to become extinguished or to be blown out. So poof, you're done. It's almost like you would say, I don't even get a Groupon. Like what? I'm done. I was born. I lived. I died. I'm born. And poof, you're gone. But Buddhism is centered around four noble truths in an eightfold path. And so this becomes how you live your life. It's how your life is organized. The first noble truth is the truth of suffering. Life is suffering. There's suffering in the world. There is suffering. Then the second truth is there is a cause 
of suffering. The truth is that something causes suffering. The third noble truth is there will be an end to the suffering at some point. And then the fourth noble truth is there is a pathway that you must go down to get to the end of the suffering. What happens is suffering exists, it has a cause, there's an end that you can head towards and you go in that direction. That's how you are living. That's how you are to live your life. That's why there's this eightfold path in Buddhism. So there are actually three sections to the eightfold path. There's a section of wisdom, there's a section of morality, and there's a section of meditation. The section of wisdom has right view and right aspiration as components. Right view, I see life the way I'm supposed to see it, I see it correctly, and I have the right desires. I'm trying to, to live you know, beyond myself. I'm trying to live through this suffering so I can get to the end of the suffering, going down this pathway, the right view and the right aspiration. The morality part of the path is right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Pretty self-explanatory. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. And then there's the meditation part of the path. Right effort, giving the right effort. The right mindfulness, I'm thinking about the right things, I'm focused in the right way. The right concentration, you know, I've got this pinpoint laser beam focused toward the end of the road so I can get through. And all along the way, you are experiencing what they call karma. And karma is either bad actions that you are doing or it's good actions that you are doing. So you get up in the morning, you do something good, you put on the coffee pot for somebody else, and that's a, that's a, a good karma thing. And, and then you do something bad, you decide to drink the coffee because the other person slept in and you don't care anymore about whether they get coffee or not. So that's bad karma. There's also neutral karma. And I didn't, I didn't even think about this ever before, but I discovered that neutral karma is breathing, eating, and sleeping. I have a lot of neutral karma going on in my life, and you probably do too. You have some maybe going on right now if you're breathing. So everything is good or bad and all these things are adding up and so you're, you're born, you live, you die. You're born, you live, you die. You got this karma and that karma and you're trying to go for the karma trifecta. You're trying to, to get it all lined up right and then poof, then you're gone. Basically, my summation is you're on your own to figure life out. But you've been given a basic structure to work with it's a lot of good guesses on how to live from a humanistic origin. So Buddhism essentially is experiential in origin. Christianity is revelational in origin. The Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, experienced life and said, there are four noble truths. We've got to get past this suffering thing. Here's an eightfold path. And, and you don't have to believe in God. You can just do this stuff. And there's karma that's happening all the time. And then if you're, you're born, you live, you die, and you finally get all your karma lined up, poof, you're done. It's, it was an experiential thing. And it came 563 B.C. out of Nepal, way before the time of Christ. And I think... I think the Buddha, with as good of a heart as he could have, without knowing about Jesus, tried to look at life realistically, experience it, 
and figure it out. I think he would have loved to have a conversation with Jesus. I think he would have heard Jesus' heartbeat. I think if he met him personally, I think he would have followed him. Now, that's just my, my conjecture, but I think he was a very bright person who was really trying to figure this stuff out. Buddhism is experiential in origin. Christianity is revelational. It's God revealing himself to us. It's God saying, I love you. I want you to love me. Here, here's my word. My word explains to you my will for your life to, to a great degree. Someone once said 90% of God's will is already written right here for you. Uh, it's revelational in that, in that God came into the world. God brought Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, into the world. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So it is revelational. And God is counting on the fact that you will hear him through his word and that you will see him in his son and that you will respond to him. It's not, and that someday he'll bring you home. Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions, or many dwelling places. And he's, he's coming to, to get us and bring us back to a place that he's prepared for us. There's no, there's no poof and you're done. He even knows that the karma thing is not going to work out because you're always going to do something wrong or say something wrong or experience something that is less than the best of who you are. And, and God says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There are 4,200 religions in the world, and Buddhism is one. Islam. Islam's another religion uh, behind Christianity. It's the second largest religion in the world. It started in 610 AD in the Middle East. Islam means surrender or submission. I'm, I'm giving myself. I'm giving myself to all these truths that are taught that came out of the, the revelation to the prophet Muhammad. Let's look at some of these teachings. Uh, the belief in God in Islam is that there's only one God called Allah. Uh, in Christianity, of course, there's only one God, but this God is a triune being called God, or uh, in the Old Testament, Yahweh. And, and we know there are many, many different designations for God, like Jehovah Jireh. Jesus. Jesus, according to Islam, was a prophet who was virgin born, but not the son of God. In Christianity, of course, he's the divine son of God who was virgin born. He is God's word and the savior to humanity. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The crucifixion, according to Islam, Jesus was not crucified. Someone was substituted for Jesus and Jesus hid until he could later on meet with his disciples. Of course, we believe that crucifixion is a fact in history and that it is necessary for the forgiveness of sins, for what is called the atonement. And we need for our salvation to understand that he died on the cross in our place. Jesus' resurrection, since Muslims do not believe in a crucifixion, they have no need to believe in a resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the anchor for Everything, you know, Paul talked about that, that we have to know that he rose again from the dead. He not only was the 
propitiation for our sins, but he was the revelation of eternal life. And through his resurrection, we know that he controls our eternal destiny. The Trinity is, is blasphemy in, in Islam. Uh, to believe you know, in three gods you know, doesn't compute in, in their belief system. We know that God is eternally revealed in three co-equal and co-eternal persons. God the Son, God the, the Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we'll never be able to, to understand that uh, because a finite person cannot understand the infinite. And to try to peel off the layers will just never make a lot of sense. But we accept on faith because of the revelation of God in the scripture that this is how God is revealed to us as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit. And the beauty of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us lives inside of us, within us. Salvation, in Islam, salvation is achieved by submitting to the will of Allah. There is no assurance of salvation. It is granted by Allah's mercy alone, and it is a a piling up of good deeds during your lifetime and weighing those out at the end. Salvation for us is Christ on the cross, God's grace, it's a gift, For it is by grace that you are saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not by works that any man should boast. The Bible, Muslims accept the Bible, uh, especially the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Psalms and the Gospels. They actually accept the New Testament. They call it the Injil. But they believe that it is corrupted. And they believe that the Quran had to be given as the final pure revelation coming through Muhammad 600 years after Jesus' life on the earth. To us, the Bible is the inspired word of God that is complete. It's not to be added to. It is the fullness of God's teaching without error for us. The line in the sand is Jesus. Someone wrote that a long time ago in Christianity Today in an article. The line in the sand is Jesus between Islam and Christianity. When you look at Jesus for who he really is, when you understand why he came into the world and what he accomplished and his, his, his life, his death, his resurrection, then you understand the truth of God's revelation to us. He said in Luke 10, Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. In John 5, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. John 6, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and mankind. 
the man Christ Jesus, 1 Peter 2. As you come to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church, and we are his church, individually and corporately. 1 John 2, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Christians affirm each of these biblical claims about Jesus while Islam rejects them. This is the decisive difference between these two faiths. The line in the sand is Jesus. Islam has salvation based on deeds during life. Christianity has salvation based on grace through Jesus. Let's look at Hinduism. Hinduism is the world's third largest religion. Almost a billion people. 14% of the world's population. One of every seven people in the world is a Hindu living in India or Nepal. Hinduism differs from Christianity and other monotheistic religions in that it does not have a single founder, a specific theological system, a single concept of deity. Some people say there are millions of deities available in Hinduism. A single holy text, a single system of morality is not in Hinduism. A central religious authority is not part of Hinduism. The concept of a prophet doesn't exist in Hinduism. Hinduism is generally regarded as the world's oldest organized religion. The concept of Brahman in Hinduism is, comes the closest to our concept of God in Christianity. But Brahman is, is a more amorphous, eternal, supreme existence and ultimate reality. And, and there's a, a, an idea that as you move through the, the samsara or the birth and death cycle, that you get closer and closer and closer to finally being released through what they call moksha so that you become part of Brahman, to become liberated from cycles of rebirth and merge with the universal spirit, Brahman. You must worship God or gods, do good works, and live correctly. Go on pilgrimages to holy places in India and learn through meditation uh, with the help of a master the truth of one's true nature and how that connects with Brahman is all part of this experience. An ascetic lifestyle, which is withdrawing from all the, the, the feeling stuff in the world, kind of drawing away, sort of a monastic kind of a life is recommended in the last phase of your life so that you can finally you know, get to this moksha experience and it's over for you. you. Now you're released from everything and you aren't really not around anymore. It's a state of ultimate peace. Moksha is a state of ultimate peace that comes at the end of lots of cycles of life. Hinduism brings many gods and a focus of worship on many figures that represent the gods. And life as a Hindu is doing things to please the gods. So Hinduism, in summary, is the doing or the do. Christianity is the done. It's what God has done for us in Christ. So here's what I think are the big differences. God is personal. Like we are personal. He made us. He made us in his image. And he gave us feelings. 
He gave us a mind that, that, that thinks in amazing ways and we still haven't, have yet to figure out the entirety of the potential of the brain. God, God made all that stuff and we are personal like he is personal. God is three persons in one. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God lives in us by his Holy Spirit. Salvation is a one-time experience of grace because of Christ's finished work on the cross. We live forever in heaven and we'll know each other when we are there. In the Shack movie, there's a scene where Mackenzie's talking to Jesus and they're talking about religion. And for me, it was, it was the seminal moment in, in the movie. And, uh, and so as they talk about religion, Jesus is explaining how he's not religious. And, and Mac is sort of, Mackenzie's sort of put off by that. And he's, he's curious about that. And Jesus says this about religion. It's too hard. It's too hard. And you see this in the Bible. You see God explaining that you don't have to do this and you don't have to do that. God is seeking people who worship him in spirit and truth. Such people God seeks to be his worshipers. God is all about this heart-to-heart, passionate experience of living life together and to check off a bunch of boxes and to do a lot of things and to visit a lot of sacred sites, those don't play well with God. It doesn't mean you can't go to Jerusalem and see things and and walk around in places that Jesus walked. It just means that God loves you as much if you go to Jerusalem as he does right now. You don't get big points for going to Jerusalem or going anywhere. You don't necessarily even get points for going to church because it's not about points. And so much of of the world religious system, the 4,200 religions that are out there, look like they're based on a, a point system. How can I put enough points on the board to somehow get to God or to get poofed out or to get something? This is what Jeremiah said long ago. Chapter 14, verse 22. Do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Do the skies themselves send down showers? No. It is you, Lord, our God. Therefore, our hope is in you, for you are the one who does all this. What might be the most theological letter in the New Testament is the book of Hebrews, and nobody's sure who wrote it. Um, Some people will say, well, we think Paul wrote it, but then there will be debate against Paul's authorship And I just want to lay all that aside because the truth is there's so much truth and there's so much beauty in the truth that's in the letter to the Hebrews. Let me read you Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In the past, God spoke through a lot of prophets and his message was coming in a lot of different ways, but that's over. Now, 
He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Jesus. Questions? Many. Answers? One. Jesus. John Grisham is a name that's familiar to many of you for the many books that he has written, and many of those books get made into motion pictures. Uh, he told an interviewer at Christianity Today back in 1994 the story of the moment he accepted Christ as his Savior. Let me read it to you. I came under conviction when I was in the third grade, and I talked with my mother. I told her, I don't understand this, but I need to talk to you. We talked, and she led me to Jesus. The following Sunday, I made a public confirmation of my faith. In one sense, it was not terribly eventful for an eight-year-old, but it was the most important event in my life. It was the most important event in his life. It's the most important event in our lives. There are 4,200 religions in the world. There is one that tells you about God coming into the world for you, to give his life for you, to teach you about who he is and who he is calling you to be. There is one. Questions many, answers one, Jesus. And just like that moment, was so significant for an eight-year-old John Grisham. That moment can be so significant for you for the rest of your life. So don't leave here today without knowing in your mind and in your heart that you have made that decision. Not a decision for religion. Not a decision for checking off boxes and piling up points and, and doing karma, whether it's neutral karma or good or bad karma. Not a decision to follow some, some pathway that has a beginning and an end, but a decision to follow a person, to know a person, to know God in the person of Jesus Christ. And you invite him in your life. You thank him for dying on the cross for you. And you invite him into your life so you will live the balance of your life for him. So that you will explode into the future in a passionate love of the Savior who passionately loved you. It's the only way to do this thing that we call life. It's the only way to live it out. It's, it's the only thing that really works. Otherwise, you're just going through the motions. You're punching in, you're punching out. You're going to school, you're coming home. You're turning on you know, a, a TV show. You're going to a game. This is bigger than all of that because this is about everything. It's about God's love and his grace. It's about what he's doing in a broken and dark world and he's doing it through you and through me. Hebrews chapter four puts it this way. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. One more thing. 
There are over 300 prophecies, over 300 prophecies that point to Jesus. There are 60 major prophecies that point to Jesus. But let's take eight. This is one of Josh McDowell's famous stories. Let's just take eight. The probability of these eight prophecies about Jesus, prophecy about being born in Bethlehem, prophecy about the exact number of coins that would be, be the payoff to Judas, you know, just prophecy after prophecy. Let's just take eight. The probability that those eight significant prophecies could be fulfilled in one person is the same as stacking over the entire state of Texas, silver dollars two feet high over the entire state of Texas. And then taking one of those silver dollars, marking it with a red X, throwing it into the state of Texas, fly over Texas in an airplane, and then just pick any spot. Boom, throw the coin out the window. I guess you can't throw the coin out the window of an airplane, but let's just, we're making believe. Hey, throw it out. It falls. Falls anywhere. Then get somebody, blindfold them, have them walk as far as they want into the state of Texas and pick one coin. The chances that they will pick the coin with the X are the same chances that are in these eight prophecies being fulfilled in one person. That's how much God wanted you to know he was coming. That's how much God wanted you to know he was showing up for you. That's how much God wants you to know that, that it's not 4,200 religions that get made up by people who are trying to figure it out. It's the revelation of God to the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And we have to talk to people about this. It's part of the responsibility God gave to us. And so God says, yet with gentleness and respect, be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have in your life to anyone who needs to know that. Jesus is unique among all the religions of the world. And imagine that one day he sat down and wrote in his diary, Dear Father, you have made it clear to them. You have drawn a line in the sands of history to connect us to them, to connect our hearts to their hearts. Father, keep opening their eyes. Allow me to open their eyes in this time and in all times to come. The ones you gave me are beginning to slowly understand. They have the blessing of seeing me. I pray for those who will not see yet will believe. Those who will give everything for what we are doing in the world. The Spirit will guide them in fulfilling our will. We will shape their earthbound struggling lives by love and grace and bring them home. I long to be home, Father. I know what to do before I return. It is not long now. Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, Allow us to rejoice in the uniqueness of Jesus. Allow us to be overwhelmed by the way that you gave us prophecy after prophecy to let us know that he was coming into the world, that you were coming into the world through him. Heavenly Father, allow us to 
reorient our lives, to realign our lives today, to fulfill your purposes. Allow us not to get caught up in the mundane, in the everyday plotting of humanity through all the muck and the mire of life. Father, allow us to to see the light of the kingdom of God always on the horizon. Allow us to, to, to have the Holy Spirit direct our every thought, our every move. Father, create in us that passion for you out of that passion that you have for us. We give you our lives again this day. Jesus, in his name.